We're in verse, uh, in chapter 1 of the book of Colossians, as you know, we're, we're studying that book. And we're really taking our time because it's a magnificent uh, treasure in the New Testament on Jesus. It's dealing with a heresy that we briefly talked about. And now the, the uh, author, the Apostle Paul, is drawing us to the central argument of his little letter here. Who is Jesus? And uh, we read at the very end of the introduction, which is a Thanksgiving section and one of the most remarkable prayers of the Bible, which we really analyzed, gave you a chart on that, and we took it apart. But he says, and this is a very important verse at the end of, of that section, verse 13 and 14, that he's delivered us, you could translate that, he's transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, in, in whom we have... Uh, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That mighty work of, of Jesus and his finished, completed work where we change citizenship. Citizens of the domain of darkness, Satan's kingdom, citizens of the kingdom of the dear son of Jesus. And so he now picks up on that and he says, I want to explain who he is to you. And so what I did up here is I subdivided this section 1 through 20, chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, we analyzed this last time. We'll do it again if you wish. He is Lord of the universe. And uh, the Apostle Paul gives three reasons why he is Lord of the universe. He created all things. Second, he's eternal. And third, he sustains everything. He holds everything together. And now what I want to do, once we get through any questions you might have, is look at the second section where he's Lord of the church, preeminent over the church. But let's stop there and see if you have any additional questions this uh, guys this little section right here is summarizing like two-thirds of the book of romans almost the whole book of galatians and major parts of ephesians in three verses i mean it's just how succinct and pithy paul can be in driving home profound truths of of the bible and, and in this case of doctrine so I've talked a lot to give you time to think maybe of any questions you might have had because we just finished this at the end of the hour. Um, Lyle and I were talking about it for a minute this morning uh, and uh, we thought we needed to hear some more about that. It talked about that uh, I had that other that other Bible that had the, the Living Bible? Yeah, I remember yeah. you. Mm -hmm. and, it, and you know, talked like Jesus was born first in some, in some of the way that they talked. And, uh, and and then uh, I, I'm sensing that it's uh, it's, it's pretty much uh, down to the Trinity, but um, there are times in this where I didn't quite understand. It's saying Jesus is the Creator. That's correct. And so Jesus and and, and God are the same thing. In that respect. Or Jesus is God. And remember our definition of the Trinity. God is one essence of three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, who differ relationally. They're different persons in the one essence of God and function. They each have a different role. And that role that they play is illustrated in creation. It's illustrated in redemption, which is really what Paul's talking about here. And I referred you... Uh, when we discussed that a number of times, to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, where you see a great praise hymn to, to God 
And Paul says, you praise God for all the blessings he's given you. You praise the Father because he chose you. You praise the Son because he redeemed you. You praise the Spirit because he sealed you. So, Woody, there you see the three persons with their three functions within the one Godhead. Give me that again. On the, uh, In, from Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is what, what I was referring to there. There you see it's a praise hymn to God. Paul is inviting the Ephesians to praise the Lord in this little hymn. Praise the Lord who's done all these things for us. Praise the Father. So you have the general praise God for all he's done for us. Praise So there's praise the essence of God. Praise God. Within the Godhead, praise the Father because he chose you. Praise the Son because he redeemed you. Praise the Spirit because he redeemed you. Uh, because he sealed you, excuse me. So, I mean, this is hard. I mean, I've studied this for 36 years, and I can give you the definition, I explain it to you, but there's still an amazing mystery to this. Because it's the infinite, eternal being revealed to us in words, and we're finite and temporal, it's still hard for us to get this. So, um, I don't know how else to... It seemed to me that you were keying in from verse 15 on the phrase firstborn of all creation. That's, is that what you were keying in on? And I, I, mean, that's, I think we talked a little bit about this, so let me go through that again. The, the word, well, I hate to use all first national paper, but did they have a good financial year? Can, okay. <laughs> okay. That word. Is prototokos. It's um, that we translate firstborn. If this is, a, I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but the um, when when you try to translate something from one language into another language, you always struggle. What's the best single word I can use to capture the meaning of that original word? In this case, it's a Greek word, and. Almost always it's translated firstborn, the, and, and that's a legitimate way to translate it. But the problem for you and me is when we think of firstborn, we think of origin, the beginning. That's not what this word means. It doesn't have anything to do with the origin of something. It has everything to do with the position, the rank. So it's not saying Jesus is firstborn in the fact that he is the firstborn, the he was born, the first one to be born. That's not what it's saying. It's saying he has this position of rank and authority over all creation. So when you, and that isn't really too much in our culture today because we're a very egalitarian culture, but if you're an aristocratic culture like England was three centuries ago, the firstborn in a family inherited everything. Doesn't matter about the rest of the kids. The firstborn inherits everything. So with that birth order comes privilege and rank. And in and Jane Austen's novels, and I know you all read her, but if you read Jane Austen's novels, what she is doing in those novels is showing the inequities of that kind of society because women are left out. You could have a household of five girls and they will not inherit anything of that the estate. The nearest and oldest male inherits the whole estate. 
So it could be a third cousin four times removed. He's the only male in the family line. He inherits the whole estate. And she would say, that is leaving an entire class of people, half the population, destitute. And that's true. Women in, 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 the, in aristocratic England for centuries, if they, did, if, if they did not marry, they would be absolutely destitute. And so what Paul is doing here is not, not focusing on a birth order. He's focusing on the privilege and rank of Jesus. Now, did I lose you? Are you with me? Does that sort of answer your collective question, Jack? I have one other question. Please, it, please. It's the same scripture that he read led you to believe that God had a beginning. That, that's not so, is it? No, that's what I mean. That's why that term firstborn, and when we hear it in English, it sounds like, well, he had a beginning. <laughs> but, I understood that part of it, but I think it was in a different scripture. It was yeah, talking, but, but it was maybe talking about the same thing, so I think you have answered it. Okay, yeah, you, you will not find anything in the 66 books of the Bible that articulates God had a beginning. You always will see God is eternal. So, any other, Jim, did you recall some of the things you wanted to... Yeah, I guess uh, I, I was thinking about some of those things that are in verses 15 and 16. And we look at such a chaotic world. Right. And, and yet it says here that God created authorities and thrones and made up all of these things. Um, somehow it, it just almost seems you know, incredible that those you can have a Hitler or a Mao or a Stalin or a ISIS. in this whole pattern that God has created. I mean, I just saw in the, in, just a couple of days ago a picture of a 13 or 14 year old boy who was going to have his beheaded because he wouldn't mm-hmm. convert to Christianity mm-hmm. by ISIS. I mean, and you look at all of these things and it's just I mean, it's almost discouraging maybe as a believer to sit back and say okay, I see this happening, but somehow it's all going to work together in God's eternal plan working to an end. And I, I understand all of that, but watching, I mean, it's one thing to do kind of abstractly and say, I understand there's a plan that's coming to an end at some point, but to see all of these other things that occur along the continuum. Well, you're, you're getting right to the edge of that much larger question about evil and the nature of it, and if God is this kind of God, why is there such horrific evil where a 14-year-old can be beheaded for uh, professing faith in Christ and so on? Um, the only answer to that, Jim, is that God is a God of order, God is a God of structure, God is a God of love and justice, but that world that he created to manifest those values of his has been disrupted by sin and rebellion against him. It starts with Satan's rebellion, and then Genesis 3, the question is, human race going to join that rebellion? The answer is yes, they are. And so God is now remaking that world. God, Paul writes in Romans 1, what was lost in Adam is restored in Christ. So what Paul is doing is he says, I want to introduce you to the one 
who is going to make everything better. And the word that he chooses to use is reconciliation. That's a profoundly important word in the Greek language which we're going to talk about in a moment. And Paul will say, here is what you used to be, here is where you are with the threefold purpose because of what Christ has done for you. And so the answer to your question, it's simple, but it's, it's basic, is the disorder and mass and dysfunction of our world is due to sin and rebellion against God. Jesus, and whom Paul is just, Jesus is the one the Father sent to fix all this. And you and I now, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, are new creations. We're new creatures. We're part of God remaking it. And you and I have a little tiny piece in which we are to make an impact for him. As long as we're living, we're to make an impact for him. Whether it's working for First National or being retired and not having anything to do like me. <clears throat> which isn't what my wife says. She says, whatever retired means, it doesn't fit you, Jim. So that's what she always says to me. Reminding me, I guess, to knock it off. So um, I don't know how else to respond to your question than, than that. But he's introducing the one who's going to fix it. I guess all I'm saying is that I, I understand and fully subscribe to the, the long plan that he has right. when it comes to accommodation and revolution. Yep. It's just it's difficult to stand by and watch what the chaos that's exactly. between then and the future mm -hmm. and now and the future. Mm -hmm. I'm just, uh, I you know, teach some classes at my church and we're doing one on a Christian Christianity in American history. And yesterday I had the class and we were talking about what is it that brought about World War II? And I mean, I've talked to this many, many times. Just reminded again, the chaos that developed between World War I and when Hitler started his crazy things in 1939, that chaos, that chaos had a cause. What was that cause? And it was, it was a collapse of the international economy, what we call the Great Depression, and what did people do? They turned to totalitarianism. All you needed was somebody like Benito Mussolini in Italy, uh, Adolf Hitler in Germany and the militaristic cult in Japan saying, give us the power, we'll fix this. We're the only ones that can fix this. And as you certainly remember, Adolf Hitler in 1939 was elected, uh, or 1936, excuse me, 1933, excuse me, was elected to chancellorship. And he, he didn't seize power. He was elected because the German people were so hammered down on all the things that resulted. They said, okay. And the fear for them was to the east is Joseph Stalin and Bolshevism, communism. And they would say, better Hitler than Stalin. So in that kind of, when things are just falling apart, whom do you turn to? The Lord Jesus or some totalitarian dictator who's saying, trust me, give me the power and I'll fix it. Now that is precursing, a precursor to what the Bible calls will be the rise of Antichrist. That's exactly what Antichrist is going to say. Give me the power and I'll fix all this stuff. And at the end of time, that's exactly what's going to happen. But that Antichrist is going to be like, not unlike anything we've ever seen in human history. 
And it is hard because you keep saying, my, my prayer is, Lord, what are you waiting for? Seriously, come on. Everything's done. You know, come back and end this stuff. Second Peter 3 gives us the answer. The father is delaying telling his son to go get his church to increase the population of heaven so that more people will come to Christ. Amen. So it's his grace. He's delaying so that more people will put their faith in Christ. But in the end of that pause, that delay feature, it's, I mean, the best we can do is what we can do in our, as you said, our little spheres. And That's right. What I am I? The other guys in this room, but I feel so impotent. Oh, I, I agree. Well, that's, and I know, I know exactly, exactly your sentiment. I know exactly what you're feeling. But the, uh, I think part of the answer to that for each one of us is, what am I doing for Christ with my life now? Whatever your age is, whatever you do. And it, it, it can just be living out your life in a righteous way, and God gives you the opportunity to, to represent him by your speed. Tell people about the Lord. So a bunch of hands go up, Fred. I would take a little bit of different bent on it, and, and I give thanks always that I am with Christ, yeah. and, and, it, and I know that that is going to be the, the end all, and, and it's a positional thing that you should, you should be giving thanks and instead of being, being impotent, and, and, uh, because then I well, I mean, ultimately, and I, I know Jim very well. I know that's what he's doing. But you do find your solace in Christ. You have to keep coming back to that because there's nowhere else. There's nowhere else to go. I'm uh, well. Anyway, right. Well, I was just thinking about. Uh, different times that we live in and it's getting worse and worse in different ways. Um, and yet, the grace of God is not diminished by the evil on the earth. I don't believe this. And nor is the power of the Holy Spirit to, to uh, permeate the lives of humanity on earth so that there is that same opportunity. I mean, we, if we went back to Jesus' time in the Romans, there's, it's somewhat analogous, isn't it, to some of the difficulties like we talk about ISIS and we talk about uh, other countries that we know are evil. They are separated from God. And they have no pretense. And God says, I, I wish you hot or cold. And we have both. We have hot and cold. And so... Is the grace of God sufficient in the times that are extremely difficult when someone says, uh, rebuke uh, your God or I will kill your parents? Right here. Make a decision. Um, somehow God works out that equity and I don't I don't know what transpires in the lives of those people. But I think everybody in this room, if it came right down to it, um, 
would probably take a bullet in the head for the cause of Christ. I mean, these guys are showing up regularly in attendance there. Uh, can you speak to that? Because we've got the function of God, we've got the function of the Christ, we've got the function of the Holy Spirit in today's world. Well, I mean, in a way you already answered your, your own question, but I mean, the Bible declares something that we always have to hold on to, is that fundamentally at the end, God's going to win. I mean, he's not going to lose to Satan. And with that goes a very important premise that we always have to remember. The cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection was the defeat of Satan. Satan lost big time. And his days are now numbered. Um, and he knows that. He understands that. But his whole strategy now is to take as many image bearers of God to hell with him. That's how evil he is. To take as many image bearers of God with him to hell. That's his strategy. He cannot defeat God. He's lost. I mean, he's not only lost the battle, he's lost the war. He is a defeated enemy, but he remains the enemy. And Satan hates the church. He absolutely loathes the church. Because the church is the light and salt of God in this age. And every time someone trusts Christ, Satan loses. Every, every time uh, a, a, a Christian is able to expose evil for what it truly is, deceptive, duplicitous, ugly, harmful, Satan loses. Every time the message of God is preached, every time it's taught, every people, time somebody opens the Bible and starts to read it, and understand it, Satan is losing. He is losing, he, his grip is loosening. I mean, it sounds, it's the only way you can understand this from eternity's perspective. But ultimately, eternity will help us make sense of all this. And maybe once we get into eternity, it won't really matter. <laughs> I have 9,682 questions I want to ask God. So, but maybe when I get to see him, I will have forgotten them all because it won't matter anymore. I don't know, but... You know, I do think we're we're not uh, uh, omniscient now, and we will not be omniscient in the eternal state. So I can only conclude we will go on learning in the eternal state. We'll go on studying. I, I really believe that. But it would be would it be correct to, to uh, when we think about this fourteen year old son having his head cut off mm -hmm. and some of the other martyrs that mm -hmm. that believe in mm -hmm. Jesus Christ and the Lord. Mm -hmm. um, even after that, after they're killed, they've lost this this life, but they've gained the eternal mm -hmm. life. Absolutely. So if we can maybe think about that, mm -hmm. when we see some of those atrocities and mm -hmm. people uh, not giving up their... That's right. This, That's right. This. Well, and that was one of the things, I, I'm rereading Michael Green's great classic evangelism in the early church. Because I'm becoming, I've shared this with my pastor, that the church in North America today is becoming more and more like the situation of the church in the first century. We are no longer setting the agenda for culture. We are no longer influencing where culture is. We're not. We have no impact on culture at all. And the results of that are very deep, and it's confusing to people. And what bothers me the most is that many, many Christians are now turning to politics and thinking that's the answer. Just get the right person off, so everything's going to be okay. It's not. That's not the problem. And so the early church 
the early church is, is a good model for us now. How were they dealing? Because they lived in a cesspool, gross immorality, paganism everywhere. How did they do it? And so I'm, I'm rereading that to get refreshed because I'm not the only one who's made that observation. But the American church is becoming, living in a situation that's more and more like the first century church. And that's important for because that's when these epistles were written. They were written to that kind of a situation. And, you know, Paul is not saying choose the right candidate and set up a political office in your church for that person. Now, I'm not saying those things aren't, aren't important, but that's not, that's not the solution. <laughs> So we got to really rethink our strategy because we live in a very different. I my kids are now young adults, so they are they are going and they're starting to have their kids in a culture that is totally different than when I was born in 1947. It is a totally different culture. You, it, it was just part of your responsibility to go to church. Eighty-two percent of the people went to church after World War II. Where's that, where's that percentage today? It used to be part of the blessing to go to church. Now you take a risk to go to church because you can be ostracized. You can be made fun of. You know, why are you doing that? You know, and it's, it's a whole different mindset. And most, most leaders today aren't caught up with that. They're still trying to think it's, well, I'm going to keep doing what was done in the 1950s. That's not going to work. Because you could make an assumption about somebody in 1950. They believe in God. They believe in an afterlife. They believe it matters how I live. They believe in values. And they believe ultimately in God. That is not where people are in 2019. Many of them don't believe in God. They are not sure about an afterlife. And moral authority is now inward. I am an autonomous individual being. I define truth. There is no transcendent truth. That, that went out the window about 25 years ago. And so you can no longer make it. You go to up to somebody, you know, you need to be saved. They're going to look at you and think you're an absolute idiot. The old strategies of evangelism from the 1950s don't work because the person whom you're speaking doesn't have the same assumptions that people had in the 1950s. And so we got to make sure <laughs> we have the right strategy to reach people in a postmodern, post-Christian world. This is a very different culture today than it was when I was in school. I mean, it is, I, I just keep being reminded of that. And I, I mean, it's almost like you almost become dull to everything that's happening to you. Not you individually, but around your culture. I mean, it's, it's almost unbelievable. I never, ever thought I would live to see some of the things that the American culture is accommodating to and legitimizing. And it's because in our culture today, the prime authority is self. I am an autonomous individual. And you cannot tell me what to do. You can't give me any set of moral standards that are binding on me. Because I don't, think so. I don't agree with them. I set my own agenda. Would it be all right if we get into the Bible now? Okay? No, that's, that's great questions here. I appreciate it so much. Let me go to the second item of what this amazing argument Paul's making about Jesus, beginning in verse 18. And he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now there is that same word, prototokos. 
And obviously, it doesn't have anything to do with beginning, does it? Firstborn from the dead doesn't have anything to do with origin. It has everything to do with position and authority. Listen, here, now make sure you don't miss this. Why does Jesus have the authority to be Lord of the church? What did Paul just get? What reason did he give you? Firstborn. Pardon me? Because he's the firstborn. Yeah, me, translate that. What does that mean? Put it another way. But that's not his point. He's not his point. Why can he claim to be Lord of the church? But why, why can he make that claim? Well, yeah, all that is true, but that's not, all, that's not what Paul's dealing with here. Firstborn from the dead. And? Because? He resurrected. That's it. Firstborn from the dead. He is the first one to be resurrected. Paul really develops this in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. But he's connecting his lordship over the church is due to his resurrection. He completed the price, paying the price for redemption, shed his blood on Calvary's cross. The Father accepted that. The Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. So now what is he? He's elevated to the position of Lord of the church. And in that, and then Paul introduces another word, that he might be preeminent in everything. Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe and Lord of the church. And what Paul is saying, his claim to being prototokos over the church is because he was resurrected. He conquered death. And because he conquered death and you know, was resurrected, he's the, first, he's the first one. And you and I are going to have exactly that same experience when the, when the son comes back for us. We will receive a resurrected body. And so, I mean, this is, this is an amazing point that Paul is making to tie his lordship to his resurrection, which establishes his preeminence. Because every leader of every worldview, of every religion, of every cult is in the grave, but not Jesus. Right? You're not disagreeing with that, are you? Right? I mean, that's the whole point. Yeah, Fred. Is this then emphasizing the, the, new, the new covenant. Exactly. I mean, that's... This is, the, this is where the new, new covenant began. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now look at the next verse. Now here's another one of these. It gets a little bit to your question at the beginning, uh, uh, Woody. Yeah. For in him, meaning Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 9, if you will, for a moment. Just look at chapter 2, verse 9. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells in a body. I'll tell you, you look at verse, um, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 19, connecting with chapter 2, verse 9, you have a beautiful summary of the incarnation. God at home in a body. That's literally how you could translate that. The fullness of deity. That phrase is you. Fullness of God, fullness of de deity. That word, I don't 
want to keep filling up these pages, but that word um, fullness is pleroma. That was a word that was used by the heresy. That was a word that was used by the false teachers. And so Paul is using that term and saying, you want to know what pleroma is? It's Jesus. It's not your angelic, quasi-angelic image of Jesus. He is the fullness of deity, the fullness of God at home in a body. That's a, that's a fantastic summary of the incarnation, isn't it? Fully God, full deity at home in a body. He is undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person. The God-man Jesus Christ. And I mean, Paul is just, don't stumble over who Jesus is. And what he's done, and it's so helpful, he's given us a cluster of words that help us to be able to define who Jesus is. Because we have to take this remarkable revelation of God in the person of Jesus and put a whole cluster of words together that accurately reflects who he is and what he does. And see, that's the problem with the heresy at Colossae. They're choosing the wrong words to describe who Jesus is, and in choosing the wrong words, they've just slipped into heresy. You follow me? That's why when I've taught church history, I say this over and over again. God uses error to promote and foster his church being more precise in what they believe. Somebody knocks on your door and says, this is a messed up world, isn't it? I represent a message that can help you find peace in this world. And they'll pull out of their satchel magazine. I'm going to give it to you. called the Zion Watchtower. And you listen to them and you think, wow, that's fantastic. Come on in. Let's talk. But to about the third page in the magazine, you're going to see that they go along with the third century heresy by a guy named Arius who said Jesus is a created being. He's not fully God. He's like a great angel. Immediately, what should your response be? That's heresy. That's the heresy at Colossae. And that was settled a couple of thousand years ago. So I'll see you later. I don't want to talk to you. Third John says, don't let heretics into your house. You know, that little letter that you read this morning, Third John, don't let heretics in your house. Don't invite them in. Don't show them hospitality because they're teaching error. Don't even give them a cup of coffee. That's not in the Bible, but anyway. I'm, I, I get animated about this because when you work through a passage like this, it's not only teaching us the truth, it's giving us the right terms to use as we talk about who Jesus is. You with me? So your thought paper for next week is take 15 through 20 and paraphrase it in your own words. 250 words or less. I don't think that many words, really. But, um, well, then don't. It doesn't have to be 250, Woody. Just however many you want to do. Just 19. Verse 19 pretty well has it right there. The fullness of deity. Fred. God was pleased to dwell. That's right. Uh, go ahead. In chapter 2. Verse 9. Yeah. Chapter 10, verse 10, is 
That's right. And you have been filled with him. That's right. Period. Yep. And what more did you ask for? Yeah. It's easy to read the fullness of deity and just kind of, yeah. But to pause and think about what that what that entails is something quite different. That's right. Just look out the Hubble telescope. But you go through all the attributes of God. Eternal. Omniscient. Omnipresent. Omnipo- I mean, you start going through all those. You know, you, there are various lists that are available. But I mean, you say, "Oh my goodness!" And then you read the gospel accounts of Christ's three years of public ministry. You see exactly that being manifested. He's in the middle of a storm. He stands up, holds out his arm, and says, "Be still!" And the storm stops. The Creator is just telling His creation what to do. He stands at the grave of Lazarus, who smells because he's been declaimed. And he says, come forth, Lazarus. And Lazarus walks out of the tomb. That's the omnipotent God restoring life to someone that had died. Amen. Only God can do those things. Amen. So you can't make Jesus, as Lewis said in, in your Christianity, you can't make Lewis just a great teacher. doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And these words are the words... The words in Colossians 1 are the words that help you and me 2,000 years later to begin to, how do I talk about Jesus? What are the terms I use to talk about Jesus? And this is a great place to start. Okay? So in him, all the fullness of deity, again, that word fullness there is pleroma, of God was pleased to dwell. And we already went to verse 14. And here, here we get to what is kind of where Paul's driving all this. And to rec- through him to reconcile to himself all things. The same phrase that was used in verse 8, 16. All things, all things, all things, all things. Used four times in verse 15, 16, and 17. Now he uses the same phrase to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Why is he repeating that? Because what Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, participated in the creative work of God, the all things, is now tarnished by sin and rebellion. So he has to reconcile all of that to himself. And Jesus is the means of that reconciliation. And what, what affected EFF? What affected that reconciliation? The blood of his cross. The blood of his cross. So you're, you're, you're moving toward and, and it can, can begin to use another cluster of words, reconciliation, which I want to talk about in a minute, of all things. So um, let me stop there for a minute because there's quite a bit I want to say about that. Do you see what he's doing here? He's just the Lord of the universe, Lord of the church, is the means of reconciling a rebellious universe back to himself. And how did he do that? 
By military conquest? No. By dying on a cross. By shedding his blood. And he makes peace through that shed blood. All right? My pastor always says there was a good place for an amen and you missed it. So, you know... (laughs) I want to talk. I want to particularly talk about reconciliation, but is that what, okay? All right. Now, Paul has introduced this whole idea of reconciliation. So, let's talk a little bit about this before we look at twenty-one, twenty-two, and so on. Um, that's the right way to translate that Greek word. Reconcile is a verb. Or reconciliation is a noun. Um, but when you when you hear that word or you come across that word or you read that word reconcile or reconciliation how would you define it? How would you talk about it? Now don't be afraid please to talk. I mean I want you to think about this because he's chosen a word here that's really important for us to come to terms with. In accounting if you reconcile you set it straight. Okay. You're making sure that it's balanced. That what is going on on the asset side is matching what's going on on the liability side. I don't know, I, in, in, my, in our house, my family, my, now it's just me and Peggy, but, you know, we were married over 50 years ago now, and the first couple of months of our marriage, our checkbook wasn't balancing. Do you know why? Because I was keeping the checkbook. <laughs> and I'm not a, Peggy's an accounting person, she loves that. And it didn't take me really long to say, this is a stupid thing for me to do. Get her keep the check. So the, the statement comes each month, no electronically, but the statement comes in, for Peggy. She, that thing has to balance to the penny. And if it's off two cents, she'll spend an hour going through every transaction to find that two cents. That's reconciling. I mean, that's, that's what else? How about reconciliation in terms of relationships? Yeah, making peace and make, agreeing to something that before you hadn't been able to agree to. Okay. It can occur. The reconciling work of a leader on a committee, the reconciling work of you kind to come between two people who are disagreeing, friends or relatives, reconciling a husband and wife, who for whatever reason, whatever the, the situation is. So to reconcile is to bring peace, to bring two parties back together again. Right? Whatever has caused it is to bring two parties who had been apart, alienated from one another, whatever, back to one another. Now, it's really interesting. The term that Paul chooses to use is a very unique term because the uniqueness of that term is reconciliation when only one party has moved. In the reconciling work of Jesus Christ, is God moving? You know what I mean? In, in, when, when a husband and wife are apart, it, it's usually complicated. There's usually a variety of things that are a part of that. And so both parties kind of come back together again. Both parties are moving back toward the center. And you know, I don't mean politics. Or you know what I mean. They're moving back toward the center. In the word that Paul is choosing, here's God. God has not moved. God is bringing us back to him. It's God bringing us back. 
You know, the old saying, I'm sure you've heard, if you're not as close to God as you used to be, guess who moved? Right? God didn't move. You did. <laughs> Humanity, in the big mega picture, humanity is running away from God because they, they don't want anything to do with him. So God, through Jesus, did not come into the world, John 3.17, did not come into the world to condemn the world. It stands condemned. He came into the world to save it, to reconcile it. Another way of saying that. And so Paul has chosen this term, and the means of that reconciliation is the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. And the effect of that reconciliation is shalom, peace. And so you have this, this magnificent mega picture of what the sovereign Lord of the universe and the sovereign Lord of the church has done for us provided a means for us to be reconciled to God. Got it? Yes. You sure? Now why do we need to be reconciled? That's what verse 21 is all about. A three-fold characteristic set of statements on why we need reconciliation. And you, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's what you used to be. That's a set of characteristic statements of who you are. Why don't we talk about this for a minute? Alienated. Again, I'm reading through the ESV translation, alienated. Um, what does that bring to mind? What does that mean? What, what's involved in the idea of being alienated? Separated from. All right, separated from. In a foreign place, a place for which God did not intentionally create us. Right. It's even stronger. It's, uh, I mean, you think about it in terms of citizenship and that sort of thing. It's a person that has no rights. Mm -hmm. Totally cut off. With no rights, no privileges, no security, that's you. Before you put your faith in Christ. It's a strong word. You're estranged, cut off. You, you have no home. You have no security. You have no rights. You, know, have, you have no privileges in terms of God's eternal kingdom. It is the worst, the worst possible position a human being can be in from the vantage point of eternity. Right? Again, you, you, you used to be able to have conversations about death and what happens after you die 
and that it matters how you live your you know it's those kinds of things are not as natural as they used to be and it's not until somebody faces death that they they were they are, are going to need to deal with it so when paul says alienated it is a strong term it, it's almost an abhorrent term but he's saying that's that's what you were secondly he says hostile in mind you could translate that enemies in your mind now that really hostile that sounds okay no, that's horrible what is that really just think of ESV's translate hostile in your mind what does that mean what unpack that what is he really saying there? What verse are you in? Uh, verse, uh, verse 21. Okay. And you were once alienated. Okay, we already talked about that second. Hostile in mind. This is a threefold description of what you were. At war with God. At war, wow, yeah, at war with God. What, what, aspects, what aspects about God are you at war with? Truth. Truth. See, truth used to be somebody, I'm not kidding, and this is really important to me because this has been my life in academic ministry, but truth used to be, everybody used to agree there's some transcendent truth. It could be Hindu truth, Buddhist truth, but there's some transcendent truth. That's not where people are today. Where is truth in this postmodern, post-Christian world? It's in me. I am the source of truth. The postmodern, post-Christian culture is saying you turn inward to find truth. And you discover your own truth that works for you. Which means you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me that what I'm doing, cohabiting with a girl that's not my wife, you can't tell me that's wrong. If I want to have an abortion, you can't tell me that's wrong. If I want to marry a member of the same sex, you can't tell me that's wrong. Do you hear what I'm saying? That's where our culture is today. And so hostile in mind is where American civilization is in 2019. The trendsetters, the culture setters of our world in 2019 are just that hostile in mind. Don't talk to me about transcendent values. There is no such thing. Every person chooses what they want. And because I define truth, therefore, however, I choose to live it doesn't matter except to me. So don't tell me what to do. Don't evaluate what I'm doing because there are no transcendent eternal truths. Now, if you think about five seconds of a civilization that's living like that, a civilization that's living like that is not going to endure for very long. Right? You can't have a bunch of autonomous people running around choosing how they're going to live. Without any, so we're struggling right now. We're, as a as a civil, we're struggling with this. We don't know how to address it, and the Church of Jesus Christ is struggling with it because the Church of Jesus Christ is still living in the 1950s. That's not exactly true, but I mean, those models and paradigms that came out of the 1950s aren't working in the 21st century because the culture is going to hell quickly, and we're struggling with how to how to deal with these things. And it is, it is hard. It is very difficult. But Paul is saying, hostile, and that is where everything that God stands for, his values, 
his ethics, his, his moral standards. I don't want anything to do with them. I, I, I just don't accept them. I don't want anything to do with them. So don't talk to me about a God. If you want to talk to me about a God who's loving and tolerates everything I do, then maybe I'm interested in it. Our culture has a moralistic, therapeutic view of God. And that's all. The chief end of life is to be happy. I define truth. I define my own standards. Because I know what it means to be happy, and I'm doing it. Don't tell me I'm doing it wrong. I mean, you see, you, you, just see, you see, you and I are so countercultural now because we're running against everything that this culture stands for. The hostile to mind, oh, that is really... You absolutely disagree with everything God stands for, and it starts in your mind. I don't want anything to do with that. I reject it all. And that's why he concludes you're doing evil deeds. Because your mind, your thought life, your thought patterns are how you rationalize your evil deeds. Brett, I think you had your hand up. Uh, I was thinking about Billy Graham. He started out, graduated from college. He, he laid down poems on the ground and he just asked God, use me. Use me. And he did. Is that true today? Yes. How do you want me to answer that? Yes. Is there a hope? I guess, I guess. Well, yeah, I'm not saying, obviously, the hope is what Paul is saying. Jesus is here to fix all this. That's where our hope is. And, and can't, can't people who are dedicated to the cause of Christ be led by God to find ways to interface with the culture of America? Absolutely. What do you think? Well, yeah, absolutely. That's why I, I said, I mean, this isn't the only way to do it, but I was just um, re-examining Michael Green's classic, Evangelism in the Early Church. How was the early church doing this? Why did the early church overcome the evil? You know, obviously, God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus did all that, but I mean, overcame the hostility of the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire doesn't exist anymore. You go to Rome and visit the ruins. You don't visit the empire. It doesn't exist anymore. You just visit the ruins. But the church is still there. The church, I don't mean the Vatican. I mean the church of Jesus Christ is still there. And so, you know, you, you, okay, what, because every, every generation, every generation has to figure out, how do I take this message to this culture? You know, America is in the need of missionaries. And Korea is sending missionaries. Nicaragua is sending missionaries to the United States. I mean, because we need, we need to hear about Jesus in certain sections of the country. Because Jesus is a curse word. It's not a name that people really know what it means anymore. It's amazing. You can talk to people who really, all they know is Jesus Christ is a curse word. They really don't understand who he is. You used to be able to make assumptions. You can't. So what do we do about this? And it's a, it's a tremendous challenge for leaders right now. Leaders of the church and leaders in 
in in major parachurch organizations have and that they are some really neat things incredibly neat things being done but we have to wake up this is not what it used to be in america america is a very different place than it used to be and we have to wake up to that uh, to do what god wants us to do to dedicate ourselves to a message that doesn't change same message what does paul say to the Jew I'm a Jew, to the Greek I'm a Greek, I become all things to all men and I might win some. I'm figuring out what do I need to do to communicate this message to these people. And the power that we have, who needs us, That's right. is equal to the task. Mm-hmm. I mean, regardless of the circumstances mm-hmm. and the situation we're in. Absolutely. So there is hope. I did a lot of preaching today. I'm just this stuff is. I feel really strongly about this because I've seen. If you're not aware of what he's really saying, you're missing the whole point. Just as stunning as the decay of our culture is to me, is the rapidity with which it happens. Many of you know I'm involved in an organization's fights for the lives of the unborn. Right. And it wasn't many years ago where it was. I mean, abortion was not supported by it. I mean, it was only supported by a very small percentage of the population that they, over half, feel that abortion in any circumstance is all right. And that if, and they do it in, a, in such a vigorous, aggressive way. I mean, it's just you say here, they're alienated and they're never with the That's right. And it. it I listened to Rush on the way up here, and the reported statistics from the Planned Parenthood Separate Institute that tracks the total number of abortions, and they're down. Well, I know the numbers are down, but the advocacy for it is significant. Well, it's it, and that flows that flows from what we were mentioning a little bit. You you turn inward for what is truth. Truth is what I determine it to be and what I want to do. And if I become pregnant and I want to have an abortion, you can't tell me I can't do that. There is no absolute moral law that says I should not do that. And that you just can't have those discussions. Uh, well, uh, now I'd hate to end with verse twenty-one because it's a great hope that twenty-two gives, but. This, when you read those three states, alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's humanity. It isn't just America in 2000. That's humanity. That's where the human race is without Jesus. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. So the three-soul result of Christ's reconciling work is what? Because that's what I want you to see. Three horrific statements of who you were, three powerful statements of what you are. What are they? Holy, blameless, above reproach. That's your position. That's who you are in Christ. Right? Right, yes. As a result of justification. This is who you are. Good, good. And so I, I'm, I'm out of time, and so I got to quit. But this is a magnificent section we're in. Uh, when I mean, I mean one fifteen through twenty.
23, which we're not quite done with. So stop asking all these questions so that next week we can finish this. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So, uh, but it's, it's rich stuff. So I hope, uh, I appreciate your questions. I really do. Thank you for sharing all that and appreciate your enthusiasm. I, I do, I want to apologize. I get kind of animated with some of this stuff. I really do. And sometimes I raise my voice and my arms are flailing, so I apologize for that. If that, if that did. Father, we thank you for the truth of these wonderful, majestic words. Paul, in these verses we've been studying, Jesus is Lord of the universe because he created everything. He's eternal and he holds everything together. He's Lord of the church and preeminent over the church because he's resurrected from the dead. He has every right to claim to be the head of the body. And every time a person trusts Christ, they become a part of the body of Christ, the church. He is the Lord and head. And his fundamental work has been a work of reconciliation. He's bringing lost, rebellious humanity back, one person at a time. And everyone in this room, we used to be alienated, cut off from God. Our minds were hostile. We were enemies of God and how we thought. We hated his values. We hated his standards. We hated his ethics. We hated his morality. We hated him. But through Jesus, he's reconciled us back to God. And doing our evil deeds is replaced by the position of being holy, blameless, and above reproach. Oh, what a magnificent work you have done for us, Jesus. What a magnificent work you do in our lives, Holy Spirit as you enable and empower and energize us to loving obedience. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for being our Father. We are your child. We have a relationship because we, with you because we put our faith in Jesus. We're new creatures in Christ. We're part of you remaking this rebellious planet. And we're excited about what you're doing. Help us to be good ambassadors, representing you well in our, in our thoughts, in our actions. We're motivated by just a simple statement. We want to hear you say to us, well done. That's something that should motivate us. So we pray for each man here. Give us strength. Give us endurance, perseverance, and help us to be joyful in what we do because we do represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.